Section 2 of Manners, Custom, and Dress. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ligny. Manners, Custom, and Dress during the Middle Ages and during the Renaissance period by Paul Lacroix. Section 2. We will now describe more in detail the various conditions of persons of the Middle Ages. The king, who held his rights by birth and not by election, enjoyed relatively an absolute authority, proportioned according to the power of his abilities, to the extent of his dominions, and to the devotion of his vassals. Invested with a power which for a long time resembled the command of a general of an army, he had at first no other ministers than the officers to whom he gave full power to act in the provinces, and who decided arbitrarily in the name of and representing the king on all questions of administration. One minister alone approached the king, and that was the chancellor, who verified, sealed, and dispatched all royal decrees and orders. As early, however, as the seventh century, a few officers of state appeared, who were specially attached to the king's person or household. A count of the palace, who examined and directed the suits brought before the throne. A mayor of the palace, who at one time raised himself from the administration of the royal property to the supreme power. An archaplain, who presided over ecclesiastical affairs. A lord of the bedchamber, charged with the treasure of the chamber. An account of the stables, charged with the superintendence of the stables. For all important affairs, the king generally consulted the grandees of his court. But, as in the five or six first centuries of monarchy in France, the royal residence was not permanent, it is probable the council of state was composed in part of the officers who followed the king, and in part of the noblemen who came to visit him, or resided near the place he happened to be inhabiting. It was only under the Capetians that the royal council took a permanent footing, or even assembled at stated periods. In ordinary times, that is to say, when he was not engaged in war, the king had few around him, besides his family, his personal attendants, and the ministers charged with the dispatch of affairs. As he changed from one of his abodes to another, he only held his court on the great festivals of the year. Up to the thirteenth century there was, strictly speaking, no taxation and no public treasury. The king received, through special officers appointed for the purpose, tributes, either in money or in kind, which were most variable, but often very heavy, and drawn almost exclusively from his personal and private properties. In cases of emergency only, he appealed to his vessels for pecuniary aid. A great number of the grandees, who lived far from the court, either in state offices or on their own fees, had establishments similar to that of the king. Numerous and considerable privileges elevate them above other freemen. The offices and fees having become hereditary, the order of nobility followed as a consequence, and it then became highly necessary for families to keep their genealogical histories, not only to gratify their pride, but also to give them the necessary titles for the feudal advantages they derived by birth. Without this right of inheritance, society, which was still unsettled in the Middle Ages, would soon have been dissolved. This great principle, 
sacred in the eyes both of great and small, maintained feudalism, and in so doing it, maintained itself amidst all the chaos and confusion of repeated revolutions and social disturbances. We have already stated, and we cannot sufficiently insist upon this important point, that from the day on which the adventurous habits of the chiefs of Germanic origin gave place to the desire for territorial possessions, the part played by the land increased insensibly towards defining the position of the persons holding it. Domains became small kingdoms, over which the lord assumed the most absolute and arbitrary rights. A rule was soon established, that the nobility was inherent to the soil, and, consequently, that the land ought to transmit to its possessors the rights of nobility. This privilege was so much accepted that the long tenure of a fief ended by ennobling the commoner. This privilege was so much accepted that the long tenure of a fief ended by ennobling the commoner. Subsequently, by a sort of compensation which naturally followed, lands on which rent had hitherto been paid became free and noble on passing to the possession of a noble. At last, however, the contrary rule prevailed which caused the lands not to change quality in changing owners. The noble could still possess the laborer's lands without losing his nobility, but the laborer could be proprietor of a fief without thereby becoming a noble. To the comites, who, according to Tacitus, attached themselves to the fortunes of the Germanic chiefs, succeeded the Merovingian Leudes, whose assembly formed the king's council. These Leudes were persons of great importance, owing to the number of their vassals, and although they composed his ordinary council, they did not hesitate at times to declare themselves openly opposed to his will. The name of Leodis was abandoned under the second of the then French dynasties, and replaced by that of Fidelis, which, in truth, soon became a common designation of both the vessels of the crown and those of the nobility. Under the kings of the third dynasty, the kingdom was divided into about 150 domains, which were called great fiefs of the crown, and which were possessed in hereditary right by the members of the highest nobility, placed immediately under the royal sovereignty and dependence. Vessels emanating directly from the king were then generally designated by the title of barons, and mostly possessed strongholds. The other nobles indiscriminately ranked as chevaliers or knights, a generic title, to which was that added that of Bonnehe. The fiefs of Hauberg were bound to supply the sovereignty with a certain number of knights, covered with coats of mail, and completely armed. All knights were mounted in war, but knights who were made so in consequence of their high birth must not be confounded with those who became knights by some great feat in arms in the house of a prince or high noble, nor with the members of the different orders of chivalry which were successively instituted, such as the Knights of the Star, the Genet, the Golden Fleece, Saint-Esprit, Saint John of Jerusalem, etc. Originally, the possession of a benefice or fief meant no more than the privilege of enjoying the profits derived from the land, a concession which made the holder dependent upon the proprietor. He was, in fact, his man, to whom he owed homage, service in case of war, and assistance in any suit the proprietor might have before the king's tribunal. The chiefs of German bands at first recompensed their companions in arms 
by giving them fiefs of parts of the territory which they had conquered. But later on, everything was equally given to be held in fief, namely dignities, offices, rights, and incomes or titles. It is important to remark, and it is in this alone that feudalism shows its social bearing, that if the vassal owed obedience and devotion to his lord, the lord in exchange owed protection to the vassal. The rank of free man did not necessarily require the possession of land, but the position of free men who did not hold fiefs was extremely delicate and often painful, for they were by natural right dependent upon those on whose domain they resided. In fact, the greater part of these nobles without lands became by choice the king's men, and remained attached to his service. If this failed them, they took lands on lease, so as to support themselves and their family, and to avoid falling into absolute servitude. In the event of a change of proprietor, they changed with the land into new hands. Nevertheless, it was not uncommon for them to be so reduced as to sell their freedom. But in such cases, they reserved the right, should better times come, of repurchasing their liberty by paying one-fifth more than the sum for which they had sold it. We thus see that in olden times, as also later, freedom was more or less the natural consequence of the possession of wealth or power on the part of individuals or families who considered themselves free in the midst of general dependence. During the tenth century, indeed, if not impossible, it was at least difficult to find a single inhabitant of the kingdom of France who was not the man of someone, and who was either tied by rules of a liberal order, or else was under the most servile obligations. The property of the free men was originally the alleu, which was under the jurisdiction of the royal magistrates. The alleu gradually lost the greater part of its franchise, and became liable to the common charges due on lands which were not freehold. In ancient times, all landed property of a certain extent was composed of two distinct parts. One, occupied by the owner, constituted the domain or manor. The other, divided between persons who were more or less dependent, formed what were called tenures. These tenures were again divided according to the position of those who occupied them. If they were possessed by free men, who took the name of vassals, they were called benefices or fiefs. If they were led to letai, colons, or serfs, they were then called colonies or demen. The letai occupied a rank between the colon and the serf. They had less liberty than the colon, over whom the proprietor only had an indirect and very limited power. The colon only served the land, whilst the letai, whether agriculturists or servants, served both the land and the owner. They nevertheless enjoyed the right of possession, and of defending themselves or prosecuting by law. The serf, on the contrary, had neither city, tribunal, nor family. The letai had, besides, the power of purchasing their liberty when they had amassed sufficient for the purpose. Serfs occupied the lowest position in the social ladder. They succeeded to slaves, thus making, thanks to Christianity, a step towards liberty. Although the civil laws barely protected them, those of the church continually stepped in and defended them from arbitrary despotism. The time came when they had no direct masters, and when the almost absolute dependence of serfs 
was changed by the nobles requiring them to farm the land and pay tithes and fees. And lastly, they became farmers, and regular taxes took the place of tithes and fees. The columns, Leti and Serves, all of whom were more or less tillers of the soil, were, so to speak, the ancestors of the people of modern times. Those who remained devoted to agriculture were the ancestors of our peasants, and those who gave themselves up to trades and commerce in the towns were the originators of the middle classes. As early as the commencement of the third royal dynasty, we find in the rural districts, as well as in the towns, a great number of free men, and as the charters concerning the condition of lands and persons became more and more extended, the tyranny of the great was reduced and servitude decreased. During the following centuries, the establishment of civic bodies and the springing up of the middle classes made the acquisition of liberty more easy and more general. Nevertheless, this liberty was rather theoretical than practical, for, if the nobles granted it nominally, they gave it at the cost of excessive fines, and the community, which purchased at a high price the right of self-administration, did not get rid of any of the feudal charges imposed upon it. Fortunately, for the progress of liberty, the civic bodies, as if they had been providentially warned of the future in store for them, never hesitated to accept from their lords, civil or ecclesiastical, conditions, honors though they were, which enabled them to exist in the interior of the cities to which they belonged. They formed a sort of small state, almost independent for private affairs, subject to the absolute power of the king, and more or less tied by their customs or agreements with the local nobles. They held public assemblies and elected magistrates, whose powers embraced both the administration of civil and criminal justice, police, finance, and the militia. They generally had fixed and written laws. Protected by ramparts, each possessed a town hall, hotel de ville, a seal, a treasury, and a watchtower, and it could arm a certain number of men, either for its own defense or for the service of the noble or sovereign under whom it held its rights. In no case could a community such as this exist without the sanction of the king, who placed it under the safeguard of the crown. At first, the kings, blinded by a covetous policy, only seemed to see in the issue of these charters an excellent pretext for extorting money. If they consented to recognize them, and even to help them against their lords, it was on account of the enormous sacrifices made by the towns. Later on, however, they affected, on the contrary, the greatest generosity towards the vessels who wished to incorporate themselves, when they had understood that these institutions might become powerful auxiliaries against the great titulary feudalists. From the reign of Louis XI, when the power of the nobles was much diminished and no longer inspired any terror to loyalty, the kings turned against their former allies, the middle classes, and deprived them successively of all the prerogatives which could prejudice the rights of the crown. The middle classes, it is true, acquired considerable influence afterwards by participation in the general and provincial councils. After having victoriously struggled against the clergy and nobility in the assemblies of the three states or orders, they ended by defeating royalty itself. Louis Le Gros, in whose orders the style or title of bourgeois first appears, 
is generally looked upon as the founder of the franchise of communities in France, but it is proved that a certain number of communities or corporations were already formally constituted before his accession to the throne. The title of bourgeois was not, however, given exclusively to inhabitants of cities. It often happened that the nobles, with the intention of improving and enriching their domains, opened a kind of asylum under the attractive title of free towns or new towns, where they offered, to all wishing to establish themselves, lands, houses, and a more or less extended share of privileges, rights, and liberties. These congregations or families soon became boroughs, and the inhabitants, though agriculturists, took the name of bourgeois. There was also a third kind of bourgeois, whose influence on the extension of royal power was not less than that of the others. There were free men, who, under the title of bourgeois of the king, bourgeois du roi, kept their liberty by virtue of letters of protection given them by the king, although they were established on lands of nobles, whose inhabitants were deprived of liberty. Further, when a villain, that is to say, the serf of a noble, bought a lease of land in a royal borough, it was an established custom that, after having lived there a year and a day without being reclaimed by his lord and master, he became a bourgeois of the king and a free man. In consequence of this, the serfs and villains emigrated from all parts, in order to profit by these advantages to such a degree that the lands of the nobles became deserted by all the serfs of different degrees, and were in danger of remaining uncultivated. The nobility, in the interests of their properties, and to arrest this increasing immigration, devoted themselves to improving the condition of persons placed under their dependence, and attempted to create on their domains boroughs analogous to those of royalty. But however liberal these ameliorations might appear to be, it was difficult for the nobles not only to concede privileges equal to those emanating from the throne, but also to ensure equal protection to those they thus enfranchised. In spite of this, however, the result was that a double current of enfranchisement was established, which resulted in the daily diminution of the miserable order of serfs, and which, whilst it emancipated the lower orders, had the immediate result of giving increased weight and power to royalty, both in its own domains and in those of the nobility and their vassals. These social revolutions did not, of course, operate suddenly, nor did they at once abolish former institutions, for we still find that after the establishment of communities and corporations, several orders of servitude remain. At the close of the 13th century, on the authority of Philippe de Beaumanoir, the celebrated editor of Coutume de Beauvoisie, there were three states or orders amongst the laity, namely, the noblemen, the freemen, and the serf. All noblemen were free, but all freemen were not necessarily noblemen. Generally, nobility descended from the father, and franchise from the mother. But according to many other customs of France, the child, as a general rule, succeeded to the lower rank of his parents. There were two orders of serfs, one rigorously held in the absolute dependence of his lord, to such a degree that the latter could appropriate during his life, or after death if he chose, all he possessed. He could imprison him, ill-treat him as he thought proper, without having to answer to any one but God. The other, 
though held equally in bondage, was more liberally treated, for, unless he was guilty of some evil doing, the Lord could ask of him nothing during his life but the fees, rents, or fines which he owed on account of his servitude. If one of the latter class of serfs married a free woman, everything which he possessed became the property of his lord. The same was the case when he died, for he could not transmit any of his goods to his children, and was only allowed to dispose by will of a sum of about five sous, or about twenty-five francs of modern money. As early as the fourteenth century, serfdom or servitude no longer existed except in Mohmah, of which we still have to speak. Mohmah consisted of the privation of the right of freely disposing of one's person or goods. He who had not the power of going where he would, of giving or selling, of leaving by will or transferring his property, fixed or movable, as he thought best, was called a man of Mohmah. This name was apparently chosen because the hand, considered the symbol of power and the instrument of donation, was deprived of movement, paralyzed, in fact struck as by death. It was also nearly in this sense that men of the church were also called men of Mohmet, because they were equally forbidden to dispose, either in life or by will after death, of anything belonging to them. There were two kinds of Mohmet, real and personal one concerning land, and the other concerning the person. That is to say, land held in Mohmet did not change quality, whatever might be the position of the person who occupied it, and a man of Mohmet did not cease to suffer the inconveniences of his position on whatever land he went to establish himself. The Mohmet were generally subject to the greater share of feudal obligations formerly imposed on serfs. These were particularly to work for a certain time for the Lord without receiving any wages, or else to pay him the tax when it was due, on certain definite occasions, as, for example, when he married, when he gave a dower to his daughter, when he was taken prisoner of war, when he went to the Holy Land, etc., etc. What particularly characterized the condition of Mohmet was that the lords had the right to take all their goods when they died without issue, or when the children held a separate household and that they could not dispose of anything they possessed, either by will or gift, beyond a certain sum. The noble who franchised Mohmet imposed on them in almost all cases very heavy conditions, consisting of fees, labors, and fines of all sorts. In fact, a Mohmet person, to be free, not only required to be franchised by his own lord, but also by all the nobles on whom he was dependent, as well as by the sovereign. If a noble franchised without the consent of his superiors, he incurred a fine, as it was considered a dismemberment or depreciation of the fief. As early as the end of the fourteenth century, the rigorous laws of Mohmet began to fall into disuse in the provinces, though if the name began to disappear, the condition itself continued to exist. The free men, whether they belonged to the middle class or to the peasantry, were nevertheless still subject to pay fines or obligations to their lords of such a nature that they must be considered to have been practically in the same position as Mohmet. In fact, this custom had been so deeply rooted into social habits by feudalism that to make it disappear totally at the end of the eighteenth century it required three decrees of the National Convention, July 17th and October 2nd, 1793 
and eight ventos years second, that is, March 2nd, 1794. It is only just to state that, twelve or fourteen years earlier, Louis XVI had done all in his power towards the same purpose, by suppressing Mormain, both real or personal, on the lands of the crown, and personal Mormain, that is, the right of following Mormain out of their original districts all over the kingdom. End of section 2